Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland. And I'm Mr. Vosliettis. Today we're going to explore the modern era of the 1920s. Here we go. So before we kind of talk about the the Roaring Twenties, as it's uh, as it's noted to be, uh, we need to kind of like put a little bit of closure for World War One through post-war problems. After World War One, we're going to experience uh, some significant in, uh, effects of demobilization, going from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy. Four million American men will be taken away from the domestic economy, and not all of them will be returning. And some will not be returning veterans that could find jobs. One of the major factors contributing to that is that women and African Americans had taken many of the jobs of the veterans, and that led to some of the conflicts that we see uh, between these groups fighting for the jobs that now they know they were capable of going forward. Factory orders for war production, obviously, from the government has fallen off, and the escalation of that um, demand has dissipated. And one of the major overall market factors was European farm products are now back on the market. So farm prices are overall going to fall because supply worldwide has increased. American consumers will go on a spending spree, which will lead to inflation. And by 1921, businesses will fall into a recession, and 10% of the American war workforce will be unemployed. So we're, there's going to be a slight recession coming back from World War One after this time period. Other things that are happening during this time is the labor conflict. Now, with labor conflict, specifically during World War One, there were efforts to um, discourage unions from protesting, from having the ability to take action and strike because of how it would hurt the war. You would be seen as unpatriotic and it would be easy to demonize these unions. So many unions, uh, as well as the government, made clear that this was something that wouldn't be tolerated. So because of this, um, you have the afterwards, it led to a lot of the conflict because many of these issues were kind of kept under the rug until after the war ends. Okay, so one of the things that happens is the progressive era softens unions' opinions, but we see the distrust of union re, um, revise, uh, revive excuse me, because of the Bolshevik takeover in Moscow. The war also led to the, the, the declining of UN, union membership by 20% because of open shop laws, uh, which basically allowed for people to kind of be employed without forming a union. Uh, as opposed to closed shop laws, which would be forcing uh, workers to join one. Welfare capitalism is the tendency for industrialists like Henry Ford to provide for extra benefits such as pensions, retirement plans, working compensation, or even extra bonuses, which kind of stop the need or really mitigate the effects of unions. And of course, law enforcement will quickly break up the formation of other unions. For example, the United Mine Workers will be led by John L. Lewis. He will suffer violent and unsuccessful strikes in Pennsylvania. This all culminates in 1919, where we have several strikes. Uh, in February, out in Seattle, there are troops are needed to stop 60,000 unionists and shipyard workers from striking. In September, it's repeated once again, but this time in Boston, across the country. Police uh, end up 
um, striking to protest the firing of officers who tried to unionize themselves. So Governor Coolidge sends the National Guard to break up the strike. So we see the tensions building and these strikes in 1919 um, also concluded with the U.S. Steel Corporation. State and federal troops are having to be called in. So now we see this resurgence of the era where businesses are defended by the government with troops breaking up these strikes. And then in addition to this, we have farm problems. And as we've mentioned before, the farm prices have, were kept artificially high during 1916 to 1918 due to the wartime demand for these crops going abroad to the Western Front, as well as U.S. policy. But after that and the lowering of tariffs, prices are going to fall. A lot, of, a lot of the problems that we've learned in the 1830s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s are going to rear their ugly head in the 1920s. When farmers uh, overproduce, it's going to be a surplus of crops, which will lead to low prices, which will uh, lead them and prompt them to get loans for farming technology and seeds, which kind of repeats the cycle all over again. So you can understand how problematic this is. Now, other issues are going to be race riots. There's going to be a great um, migratory event or phenomenon known as the Great Migration, which really is uh, a large amount of African Americans that are going to move up north in search for better life and, and job opportunity. Of course, the people in the north, historically speaking, um, although had interacted with black community, not on the scale with the southerners. So we have this tendency to think that the people in the south were uh, racist with their Jim Crow laws and the north were relatively progressive. Well, this is the first time where a large population of uh, African Americans are going to now integrate, and the northern populations are going to react with just as much hatred and violence. Yeah. One of the major factors um, for uh, fear and ignorance like that is the fact that when you don't know somebody, there's fear into it that leads to the anxieties that cause these things. So in East St. Louis, Illinois, is one of the most famous um, in 1917, there's a race riot that erupts. It started actually on the beach about, um, you know, black, um, young black boys that were there participating on the beach. All of a sudden, there's rocks thrown back and forth, and it erupts and spreads all throughout the city. And, and this is one of the things that um, we end up having 40 people killed and 500 people injured because of this. In response, there's a lot of lynchings that continue to spike throughout the war in the South because of the increased interaction between the races and the people that are uncomfortable with it. People are not only responding to labor and race um, up in the north, but on, on the national level, we're starting to respond to socialism in a very ugly way. Prior to the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, uh, socialists like UGV Deb were generally well-respected among the community, albeit the populations that he held in terms of the 1912 election were small, but they were not. he was not seen as a threat. Now that the Soviets take over Russia, there's this tendency to think that there should be a legitimate fear in the spread of communism and and in our own society. Of course, this is not, um, this is gonna be proliferated by an event known as the Palmer Raids. Uh, these raids are going to be enacted by the Attorney General at the time, A. Mitchell Palmer, who re will react to a series of bombings that will be caused throughout the country, um, especially uh, his own house, actually, believe it or not. And he's going to authorize um, J. Edgar Hoover, the, uh, the uh, I guess the, the, the director of the FBI at the time, to gather info on what he would deem as radicals. The problems with these bombings or explosions, a lot of them are not uh, substantiated, and there's no confirmation on who would have done them. Despite all this, there will be mass arrests of anarchists, socialists, or any labor agitators, people that the government already did not like or already suspect of during the time or during the war are going to be under arrest. By November 19th, uh, 19 to January 1920, over 6,000 people will be arrested on limited criminal evidence. Mm. Most suspects will be, of course, foreign-born and promptly deported. 
outspoken radicals such as Emma Goldman, but will be one of them. Yeah, and the, the way in which the Red Scare fades is that Palmer stirs up this fervor and this hypervigilance around the country of what we should be concerned about and fearful of, and he warns the public about riots that may be coming on May Day. Internationally, May Day is known as a movement for workers standing up for their rights, and this is something that he was concerned that in 1920 would be the way in which the beginning of the revolution uh, would happen here in America. It never materialized. So in many ways, he hyped up this fear so much that he loses some credibility. And then people start to question his methods and also whether or not um, these pra the practices of detention of these type of uh, political uh, theorists, as well as deportation of other people as considered radicals, whether it's something that we should have in this country. So because there's a lot of post-war problems, it's going to prompt or necessitate a political change in our American electorate. A lot of people are really worried or uh, sick of some of the progressive measures and the high-minded idealism that was found in Wilson's 14 points in the Treaty of Versailles. So during the election of 1920, you're going to have uh, Democrats that will nominate Governor James Cox of Ohio, typical Democratic uh, progressive, and uh, the Republicans will nominate Senator Warren G. Harding from Ohio. The results, Harden will win on a campaign slogan, returning to normalcy. This will be seen by many as a repudiation of the League of Nations, World War One, as well as progressivism. And uh, Warren Harding is going to try to return back to some of the conservative policies that we've seen in the Gilded Age. Yeah, so when we go into the era of the 1920s, we end up having three Republican presidents are controlling the executive branch. Um, in addition to that, uh, the most of Congress is Republican since the middle of Woodrow Wilson's term. And when Roosevelt finally dies in 1919, Teddy Roosevelt that is, uh, the progressive wing of the party ends up dying with him. So you see this resurgence of that old guard of business conservative from the Republican Party ends up dominating um, the same way in which it did before the progressive era. So largely there's a business doctrine that governs the political nature of their party, and that is one in which we are now going to um, not necessarily the purity of the laissez-faire economics of the 1880s and 1870s, but the idea that there should be very limited government regulation and that government could aid and help stabilize businesses overall, but we don't want the governments to go overboard. We don't want the government to get involved too much. One of the major changes is the way in which they handle the regulatory agencies. So they were established during the progressive era, but now they're going to be administered by appointees that are a little bit more sympathetic to business than the general public was in the previous two decades. So the idea was, and what their principles um, they stood on were, that let the businesses pursue profits that would benefit the rest of society. And this is the beginning of a phrase we're gonna to refer to going forward, this term called trickle-down economics, that if you allow the businesses and the wealthy to prosper, that that would be something that would, the engine that runs the economy where the rest of that wealth will eventually trickle down to help all of society. So we're going to examine the presidency of Warren G. Harding a little bit closely. And despite the fact that the conservative and the old guard regime is going to overpower the Republican progressives during this time period, a lot of the factions within the Republican Party are going to be deadlocked at the nomination convention. So they're going to pick Harding again as kind of like a dark horse compromise choice. He's going to be a no-nobody from Ohio, and because of that, there's not going to be a lot of dirt on him. 
Hardin will recognize his limitations, however, as a leader, and he will pick really competent men to his cabinet. For instance, he's going to pick the Secretary of Ju Supreme Court Justice Charles Evans Hughes to be his Secretary of State. We will discuss him later on in other periods. The engineer of the Food Administration, Herbert Hoover, will be picked for the Secretary of Commerce. Known for his ingenuity as well as organizational skills, Herbert Hoover will become a, a valuable asset during his administration. The Pittsburgh industrialist Andrew Mellon will be picked for the Secretary of Treasury. And of course, William Howard Taft will be picked to become the next Supreme Court Justice. So these men are going to be uh, very much representative of his good side of his administration. Now, domestic policy, Harding was not as outspoken like Roosevelt in trying to really intimidate Congress to do what he said. He did not use the bully pulpit as much as he kind of um, had Congress on his side in a large part. So he was able to sign multiple bills to bring great, uh, great change to society, specifically reduction in the overall income tax. 1922, there's an increase of the tariff rates. Republicans, once again, going to support tariffs to support business compared to the Democrats under Wilson's administration that lowered them. Okay, um, he establishes the Bureau of the Budget. So now we have making uh, voting on an overall budget more efficient in order for the Congress to get through that more quickly. Um, and also he decides to pardon and release Eugene V. Debs from federal prison for speaking out against the war. Um, scandals and his death. Unfortunately, Harding is not going to appoint all great men. Some of them are going to be scandalous in his cabinet as well. They are going to be known as the Ohio Gang, or his poker buddies. One of which will be a man named Albert B. Fall, the Secretary of Interior. That guy's responsible for all of the uh, con conservation lands that Teddy Roosevelt had put aside for later consumption. Of course, as well as Harry uh, M. Daugherty, the leading attorney of the nation. And both of these men are very much involved in a scandal known as the Teapot Dome Scandal in 1924. Congress will discover that Fall will take bribes from granting oil leases near Teapot Dome, Wyoming. Uh, in further investigation, Congress will then later find that Daugherty will also be able to take will be taking bribes for agreeing not to prosecute criminal suspects in the scandal, like Fall. Harding, of course, will die a year earlier in 1923 while traveling west. He will never be implicated directly in any of these scandals, but it will be enough to kind of cast aspersions on the Harding administration. One of the things that I've heard said about Harding is that it was he was so crushed by the fact that his he knew that his image was going to be associated with these scandals, that that played into his depression and his early death, is that in 1923 when he was traveling, he just felt that like he was so publicly embarrassed that he was almost heartbroken for his image. He was such a proud man. And one of the interesting things about Harding is it's Ulysses S. Grant, Harding, and Nixon are really the three presidents always connected um, in, as, in terms of a sense of these are the presidents known for their scandals. We know Johnson and... Um, Clinton were the two that, to be impeached, but those are the three that are always associated with the scandals that took place during their administrations. And that brings us to the presidency of Calvin Coolidge. He was nicknamed Silent Cal. He uh, had popularity based on his leadership during the Boston police strike that we mentioned earlier when he was governor of Massachusetts. And his basic domestic policy was focusing on the business of America is business, almost kind of like the dollar diplomacy of Taft, is that we need to continue the conservative policy, and if we point to the reasons that everyone is going to profit within our capitalist system, that's how our domestic policy should be um, focused on. Not necessarily these social issues, these foreign policies, no. If we focus on business and profit, this will overall improve society. And in the election of 1924, he's able to win. The Democrats nominate John W. Davis, progressives Robert Lafayette, and he received 
almost 5 million votes from farmers and laborers. So this is a third-party candidate that considered um, made a significant push for the presidency. But he wins the election despite that third-party challenger, and the Democrats are bringing up the Teapot Dome scandal as saying that he should be associated with it, and the Republicans have are going to have to own that issue. It was largely focused on Harding, and Coolidge wasn't effective, and that allowed him to um, earn the presidency. And Coolidge, being the strong constitutionalist that he was, believed that limited government was necessary, and he spent most of his time in the administration watching the budget instead of really kind of enacting law. He will veto even acts of hit the Republican majority in Congress. He will not allow bonuses that would have been promised by World War I veterans. This is going to lead to the bonus march that we will talk about later. Uh, he will veto the McNary-Hagen bill of 1928 to help farmers. So despite all of these vetoes and inaction, um, the Republican presidency uh, will kind of be continued through Herbert Hoover as Coolidge declines to run for a second time. Um, Herbert Hoover, of course, since World War I, will have a spotless reputation, self-made millionaire, Secretary of Commerce. He was in the Food Administration. He'll be known for his ingenuity and organizational skills. Democrats will elect Albert E. Smith, a Catholic governor, a progressive from New York that will appeal to immigrants in the cities. However, that, uh, that attraction won't win him far, won't go beyond the state of New York. Uh, the positive rhetoric about the economy plus the Protestant prejudice towards Catholics and Smith will be enough to secure Herbert Hoover another win for the Republican Party. Yes, and one of the things to know about Albert E. Smith, he's the very first major party uh, nominee to be Catholic right. uh, to run for the presidency. And so one of the things about the presidency that is most important and difficult for Hoover in just terms of timing is that uh, the great James Carville said it's, it's the economy stupid. So the economic changes during the 1920s always um, have a huge focus on the way in which presidents are viewed. And regardless of what's happened socially, presidents can always withstand issues if the ec economic factors in their society are thriving, but always are going to get blamed for the economy when they're doing poorly, and that's one of the things that Hoover uh, has to deal with. So we have the development of that brief recession, that 10% decline in uh, GDP during 1922 to 1928, but at the same time, we have a period of business prosperity. Unemployment was below 4%. Standard of living is increased, so everyone kind of is brought up with indoor plumbing and heating becoming very, very common. And over two-thirds of all homes now have electricity by 1930. But at the same time, we still see the haves and the have-nots, where 40% of the nation is not um, have an income above in, that is in the poverty range, excuse me, and they are struggling, living less than $1,500 a year. Farmers particularly are struggling because of the um, environment that we mentioned earlier in the podcast, the worldwide economy, as well as the lack of the demand from um, the war production. So there's a variety of reasons why the businesses started to prosper, or the economy started to prosper during this time. One is increased productivity. People like Henry Ford will kind of work on Frederick W. Taylor's scientific management and uh, apply it in his assembly line technique, which will improve the system of mass production. Energy technologies. There will be an increased use of oil and electricity, which will, of course, increase production. By 1930, oil will account for 23% of U.S. energy, up from a mere 3% in 1900. The government policies that are really crucial are the corporate tax cuts that happened during this era that allow businesses to re retain more of their profits. And there's a non-enforcement of some of the progressive regulatory agencies or antitrust laws. So there's a re it's not that they're um, 
out, they're taken off the books, but there's a, a relaxation roll and rollback, right? So the key is that the, they choose not to enforce many of them. The Federal Reserve ends up lowering interest rates and relax regulation on the banks, which leads to an imbalance of incomes and speculation in the market. So speculation we saw was a um, recurring theme in the 1800s, causing many, many recessions and panics, financial panics. And this is something that um, when left unsupervised, like we saw the, the need for the progressive era, now in the decade following, there's the determination that we should relax and allow them to do what they need to do to make the profits. Another big reason is the rise of con this concept called consumer economy. So what we talk, what we mean by that is the rise of consumer appliances and their respective pr uh, manufacturers. So refrigerators, vacuum cleaners, washing machines. The rise of the automobile perhaps is is basically very akin to the rise of the railroad industry in the 1860s. Um, 1929, you have 26.5 million cars, up from 1.2 million in 1913, which is an average of one car per family. This will replace the railroad industries as a key promoter of economic growth. Now people have the ability to access um, you know, other businesses without waiting on the tyranny of the clock, waiting for scheduled train times. Now people can just get up and go and do what they need to do. Other industries will be dependent on the success of this industry. Things like steel, glass, rubber, gasoline, highway construction, all of these are going to orbit around the automobile industry. One of the key elements is that the other industries that are now running parallel to them, right? So shopping, tourism, the concept of dating. Yeah. So if you're a young person, the access to a car now is right. something that now gets you free from the tyranny of your parents. Um, being able to travel around and just explore instead of, like you mentioned before, just being stuck to the tracks and where they take you. The rise of advertising, I think, is is often under, um, you know, we don't necessarily highlight that as much in terms of the role it played in this consumer economy. But never before in history were you told and tried to be convinced of the importance of you, the, your need to buy a certain product. And the whole um, environment of advertising that we see very uh, strongly in our environment now today in our economy and the importance of commercials, the advertising sector starts now trying to tell you that you need something that otherwise you didn't think you needed for before. And one of the other things that plays into the downturn in the economy is the concept of buying things on credit. In department stores, we're familiar with credit cards, but department stores would have different accounts where you would go and you would have a certain number that they would keep for your store. The evolution of credit cards came later, but the concept is the same. Buy something now that you can't pay for. It's okay. Pay it off later. It's not a big deal. The most important thing is get what you want. And that is what revolutionizes and increases consumption and purchase power of the American consumer, which then increases profits all around the country. With the political and economic changes occurring during the 20s, there's also going to be a tremendous amount of social and cultural changes. Uh, believe it or not, by the according to the census in 1920, this will be the first time where more than half of the American population will live in the urban areas. Of course, this will uh, create a new and unique type of modern urban culture, which will inevitably lead to a clash between two regions, uh, urban versus rural, modern versus traditional, secular versus fundamental. And we're going to see these being carried out in a variety of ways. The first uh, change in society is this concept of crime. Uh, that kind of been was prompted and supported with the 18th Amendment, which is the prohibition of the distribution and manufacturing of uh, alcohol. Uh, it was ratified in 1918 in the wake of World War I, 
because the government was very much concerned with conserving wheat and grain, the ingredients for making beer, to keep for the soldiers uh, on the Western Front. And they were also very worried that the workforce that was needed to uh, produce war goods might uh, be too drunk, so they wanted to keep them sober and productive to meet the wartime quotas. Uh, the Volstead Act was passed in Congress, which basically was is the infancy of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. It provided Congress and any federal agency under Congress with the authorization to enforce federal laws. And at this point, it was going to enforce the 18th Amendment. It will be able to confiscate alcohol across the country and arrest bootleggers, people who are going to uh, produce offhand or illegal alcohol. So I know it's probably a difficult concept for many of you to understand that people would go against a law and defy it, but most Americans defied this law, especially in the cities. You know, you would think that if something wasn't allowed that people wouldn't do it, but I don't know. So these speakeasies that develop are underground bars and clubs that from the outside would look like a typical business, but once you go in, maybe a secret door, it seems like a normal thing, but there's this back room or an upstairs place where it's actually a bar and club where everybody is going. And usually you have mayors and police officers that are bribed to ignore these, that are blatant violations of the Volstead Act. Um, even President Harding had a personal alcohol stash. But the, the simple fact is that Americans drank. It's part of their culture. And there's a simple uh, change of the law is something that is not going to uh, allow everybody to do uh, 180 on their behavior. So despite the defiance, the problem is with the demand, there's going to be somebody that meets the supply uh, and meets that demand with the supply. And that's where we see the rise in organized crime during prohibition, which is such an issue. Specifically Al Capone, who capitalizes in largely the area surrounding um, Chicago and wrangling over the control of the lucrative bootlegging industry. So bootlegging can Consp uh, inspires other illegal ta uh, activities such as prostitution, gambling, as well as the spread of narcotics. So this is the beginning of a lot of the mob that you might be uh, aware of that continues from this point forward into the 1900s. And this leads to a lot of political discord and, and the call for repeal for many people. Most Republicans support that this noble experiment um, is okay because there's going to be some drinking in, in private. But Demo Democrats are much more split on this issue and they're because largely of their varying constituency. You have the rural Democrats that are supporting prohibition. You have urban Democrats are calling for repeal because of how present it is in their society. But the combination of this rise in crime plus then the Great Depression that hits at the end of the uh, decade, this leads to the repeal of the Volstead, uh, 18th Amendment excuse me, in 1933, and that is what the 21st Amendment is. Another social change in the 1920s is the change in gender roles in marriage. The 19th Amendment that authorizes the suffrage of women did not radically change U.S. politics, as many people would have expected. Women did not vote in a block, and they really much pretty much reflected the preferences of their husbands and fathers. Women at home are going to assume traditional gender roles after World War I. Home appliances will slightly ease the burden of domestic labor, but their roles are still going to be fixed. Women in the labor force, uh, some will be employed, and they will mostly live in cities and limited to feminized jobs such as clerks, nurses, and teachers. They will have still lower wages than when, uh, men. The revolution in sexuality was, in fact, one of the biggest things that happened with respect to women and gender roles. The new revolt against sexual taboos was partly going to be inspired by Sigmund Freud's theories on sexual repression and its correlation to mental illness. Now that Freud came up with these theories, the topic of sex became more widespread and more open for discussion. 
This is going to allow for experimentation and, of course, the thought of sexuality. Partly inspired also by the Cultural Revolution, the concept of premarital sex will be seen as a rebellion to traditional norms encouraged by movies, reflected in ideas through characters, automobiles, which would be nicknamed Bed on Wheels, as Mr. Copeland said, the easy access of automobiles and the distance away from a household made it very easy for the youth to kind of get away from their parents. Jazz and dance moves such as the Foxtrot and the Charleston will encourage promiscuity and proximity to the opposite sex. All of these, of course, are going to be very much challenging to the traditional gender norms that we've seen in the Victoria era. Birth control movement that will be led by advocates such as Margaret Sanger, of course, will also be one of the uh, one of the one of the forms of rebellion with respect to how women are going to um, even try to choose whether or not they will have children during this time. Of course, divorce will be another rebellious uh, form and a way in which gender roles could be challenged. Suffragists will achieve a platform despite limited rights. Lawmakers will pass liberalized divorce laws, making it easier for women to actually seek divorce. Prior to this, many women, it became very difficult to get out of a, of a marriage, even if that marriage resulted in domestic abuse. Uh, now, by the 1920s, and uh, we're going to begin to see some state and local municipalities uh, loosening those laws up. By 1930, one in six marriages will end in a divorce compared to one in eight in 1920. So we are going to have some of these changes with respect to gender roles, but no big change is quite as big as the concept of the flapper, which was a form of rebellion through fashion. Uh, the characteristics of the flapper are the short hair, the hem dresses at the knee, smoking cigarettes and driving in cars, and entering into speakeasies. Um, this, of course, will be in contrast with the Victoria woman with the corset, uh, and we will begin to see women's changing roles uh, throughout the 20th century continue to evolve. And all these things continue to influence the changes that we also see in popular culture overall and entertainment. So you have the rise of radio. Um, by the time we get to 1930, there are more than 800 stations and in 10, mile radio, uh, 10 million radios in one-third of homes. So you have 30% of the population being able to be reached through these, this new medium. So 1924, you have the creation of the National Broadcasting Company, also known as NBC. 27 is Columbia Broadcasting Company, that is CBS. So you have provided a variety of these networks and radio stations that kind of standardize these radio programs, very similar to the radio programs that we have today. You'll have news, you have sporting events, Soap operas and quiz shows and comedies have transitioned to television, but they all started on radio first. The other thing about the 1920s is they're some of the most iconic uh, eras in film. In 1927, you have the introduction of sound in movies, which is crucial. And you see evolution in the way in which by 1929, you have over 80 million people going to the movies every year. Uh, Greta Garbo, Rudolph Valentino are, are the two major movie stars of this era. And there's also these popular heroes. You have Brian and Roosevelt of the past, Wilson. They're widely viewed as these uh, heroic figures of politics. And by the 1920s, we begin to shift to idolize to these new celebrities. You have Jack D Dempsey, who's a boxer. Jim Thorpe, one of the greatest football players ever. Bobby Jones, a golfer. Uh, Gertrude Elderly was a swimmer. Babe Ruth, I'm sure you've heard of, baseball player, and Charles Lindbergh, the courageous aviator. Um, these are all people that we look to as uh, the power of celebrity begins in this country that we still see to today, uh, and it starts in this era. Perhaps the biggest um, 
form of change that really encapsulates the 1920s is uh, a period known as the Jazz Age. It's a musical genre that be quickly became a symbol of modern culture. It will be introduced by black musicians from New Orleans that have gone from New Orleans to Louisiana, up north into Chicago and New York. And this will provide, this musical genre will provide a chance for uh, racial interaction. Although it will be limited and superficial um, and only in an urban setting, this will provide a chance for the two races to kind of intermix on a positive note. By 1930, 20% of the black people live in the North. This will be due to the continuation of the Great, great Migration. Uh, still, uh, despite the fact that they will go up North for a better search for a better job and better life, they will face discrimination in housing and jobs, but found some improvement in their earnings and material standard of living. The largest black community will begin to develop in the Harlem section of New York City. By 1930, the population will reach almost 200,000 people. The area will become known for its concentrated of talent, acted, actors, artists, musicians, and writers. This, of course, will lead to the beginning of a, of a time known as the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, and one of the most famous uh, periods of cultural change in art history is these poets and musicians that are associated with the Harlem Renaissance. The most well-known it is probably Langston Hughes, but County Cullen, Weldon Johnson, and Claude McKay are all leading poets that are really commenting on the black experience and reflecting back on what their black heritage means and what it means to be a black person here in America. So they express emotions bitterness, resentment at the conflict, uh, conflicting emotions of joy and hope that black people experience in our country from the freedoms they were uh, eventually um, were able to be granted justifiably and what they had fought for and what they've been through and the hope for the future that there could still be improvements from there. Um, Duke Ellington, Louis, uh, Louis Armstrong, the most popular musicians above all others, uh, famous for their jazz, um, you know, the way in which you would go into these uh, different speakeasies of this era and see these jazz musicians were things that in person would be things that everybody would be searching to go for. Uh, Bessie Smith and Paul Robson are two singers that are incredibly popular within this Harlem Renaissance. And this is all a way in which black culture starts to um, be more and more a part of the general and overall popular culture of America for the more than ever before. The uh, literature is going to make headway during this time as well. It's going to be known as the literature of alienation. Disillusionment over the war, government, and religion will kind of uh, inspire writers uh, to be uh, focusing on themes of loss, suffering, the decadence of materialism, business-oriented culture, aspects of surrealism. This generation of writers will be known as the lost generation. You probably know many of them, writers like F.S. Fitzgerald, the writer of The Great Gatsby, Ernest Hemingway, writer of Old Man in the Sea, and Sinclair Lewis. Poets like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot will make their debut during this time period, as well as playwrights such as Eugene O'Neill. Uh, you can think of them as the first foundation of the beatnik movement or later the uh, hippie movement. If you want to go back towards the 1830s, you can think of them as the transcendentalist movement. Mm -hmm. But they're responding specifically to the horrors and the surrealism of mechanized warfare during World War I. That's why they're known as the lost generation. Um, Art and technology will create, of course, a new purpose in, in architecture. Uh, the emergence of industrial designers will be a big thing. Some style called Art de Deco plus streamlining, making things a lot faster and easier, will lead to the creation of products with aesthetic appeal. Things like toasters all the way to automobiles. They'll be sleek uh, with a nice curvy design, which will be aesthetic not only to the consumer but to the artist as well. Things like the Chrysler and the Empire State Building will take on new meaning in terms of architecture. 
This is known as the modern design. Painters Edward Hopper and his very famous painting of the man uh, eating at the diner will feature uh, and explore loneliness and isolation in urban areas, a theme found among many people that are moving into those spots. Grant Wood and Thomas Brenton will also focus on scenes of the heartland of America, try to find uh, man's search for meaning and the loss of, loss of um, something from the 19th century. Now, one of the things that the overall standard of living improving also led to was the ability of the general public and the common person to experience all of this art for yeah. the first time ever. Um, and especially in the movie theaters are important, but also the theater itself. Jewish immigrants and, uh, and, and Americans, Jewish Americans, really helped develop musical theater in many of these cities, specifically George Gershwin. He blended the jazz and the African-American community and the Harlem Renaissance with classical music that he was very familiar with, and it made it more digestible to mainstream audiences, uh, most famously the Rhapsody in Blue and Porgy and Bess, but much of the modern-day musical format that you see in the past 30, 40 years comes from George Gershwin's inspiration, and this is really a way in which we now experience um, musicals um, on Broadway routinely. Now with all these changes in mind, there's going to be obviously a reaction to all this modernity, and it's going to be found in a variety of ways. One of the ways is which um, is, is going to be known through a trial known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. It's a trial that will be faced in Tennessee and it will reflect the tension between modernists and fundamentalists. What modernists are at the time are a type of Protestants that are going to redefine their faith based on the modern era. Things like Sola Scriptura, they're going to not be very comfortable with, and they're going to interpret the Bible from more of a critical, literary, and historical point of view. And they're going to be able to accept the theory of evolution by Charles Downing without necessarily abandoning their religious faith. Fundamentalists, by contrast, are going to be Protestants who will reject New Age interpretation of the Bible. They're going to assert that God created the world in seven days and made man. They're going to assert that nowhere in the Bible expresses evidence of man's evolution. And because of this, these Protestants will reject the concept of evolution. They're also going to go further and say their mission is to awaken the sleepy flock and alert them of the dangers of secular society that we've mentioned before. And they're going to use the radio to reach their community. People like Billy Sunday will attack drinking, gambling, and dancing. Others like Amy S. McPherson are going to condemn the evils of communism and jazz. So these are some people that are going to be responding to the modern changes that we've, we've mentioned before. Now, the newly formed American Civil Liberties Union from about a decade earlier, they were looking for an opportunity to challenge this new Tennessee law that was established by people that had been elected that were by many fundamentalists in Tennessee. And this law basically prohibited the teaching of evolution in schools. So they were searching for an opportunity to have another example of test case litigation. And the ACLU went and prompted this biology teacher by the name of John Scopes. So he decides, all right, I'll do it. He decides to teach it in school that day. He's reported in the high school class um, is where he gives that lecture and then is immediately arrested for it. He's tried in 1925. Now this trial was absolutely a circus and there were people outside. Um, it was broadcast all throughout the country. The defense lawyer was the famous Clarence Darrow. The prosecutor, you may remember, is William Jennings Bryan, the populist nominee for president. So the court ends up holding Scopes guilty, but it's later overturned because of a technicality. He ended up getting a, a, a brief fine and was able to be okay, but the key was that the ACLU brought the attention of this issue and the relationship between religion and public schools and whether or not the separation of church and state and what cost that might have to censorship of more radical viewpoints. Points. So the concern here is that the trial, um, you had uh, 
literal monkeys and chimpanzees outside. There's this famous song is that you won't make a monkey out of me is what many of these fundamentalists were insulted by the fact that uh, Darwin's evolution implied that they somehow were descendants of apes. Um, so this is the way in which these cultures are clashing and it was all a way in which people's reaction to the great changes that had occurred during this decade. And this brings us to the rise in nativism. From 1919 to 1921, there's going to be an increase in immigration. Over one million immigrants, mostly Catholics and Jews from Eastern Europe, that will flee actually from the rise of Soviet communism into America. Fear of job competition and foreign ideologies such as Marxism from the Red Scare will prompt Congress to pass two laws that severely set quotas based on nationality for the first time. Quota Act of 1921 will limit immigration to 3% based on 1910 census records. Maximum of 300. 57,000 immigrants. The Quota Act of 1924 is going to continue the limit, limitation of immigration to 2% based on an 1890 census. So they're not going from 1910 census back to the 1890 census. In addition, they're going to restrict immigration for certain groups of people. Of course, they're going to restrict people from Eastern Europe, but more targeted to undesirable immigrants. In 1927, there will be a quota for Asians and Eastern Europeans specifically, which will be limited to 150,000, and all Japanese will be barred from entering the country at this time. Canadians and Latin Americans, by contrast, will be exempt. And interestingly enough, almost 500,000 Mexican immigrants will legally migrate during the 1920s. And this is one of the very first examples where we place a limit on European immigration. Up until this point in our history, in the previous 30, 40 years, we'd seen routinely the Exclusion Act with targeting the Chinese and others. So this is an important distinction that before 1921 and 1924, there literally were no immigration laws for European immigrants. And this brings us to the case of Sacco and Vanzetti. In 1921, Nicolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti are convicted in a Massachusetts court for committing robbery and murder. Now, the problem is the element of evidence. We don't know how much evidence there was. Liberals assert that these two men were being targeted because they were immigrants and they're and and the fact that they had some anarchist sympathies, but not the fact that they actually committed the crime. So there are six years of appeals and they debate to um, after debate, the two were finally executed. It's, it's also interesting, in 1925, there's a man named Concedi Madero that actually will come out and admit that he is responsible for the murder, um, and despite that, the Supreme Court will refuse to overturn the decision in Massachusetts. However, later, through forensic evidence, there has been some evidence to suggest that Sacco's gun um, has been traced to the murder, but not so much Bartolomo de la Vansetti. So regardless of the innocence of these two, the way in which the due process was held by these two Italians because of their ethnicity really showcases the fear of nativism at a time where we were uh, initiating these, uh, these quotas. It was very much the experience that uh, many um, African Americans had, had experienced throughout the South is that they put one person there and say, this person did it, and there's no one else to question because, yeah, this person, I could see them doing that. And the way in which they got railroaded by the system was the major concern of a lot of people protect that were interested in protecting the civil rights of Americans. And the um, other thing here we want to finish with here in nativism is the rise of the Ku Klux Klan once again. So you see, after a 30-year kind of hi uh, hi hibernation, you see the emergence of the KKK largely in the Midwest, specifically Indiana was the rebirth place of it. And um, it's largely, largely because of the great migration of many African Americans to the north. North, You have the changes of this modern society and this movie, A Birth of a Nation, which really um, tries to reclaim the glory and the truth 
of the story of the South, which is that the KKK was the great defender of liberty and the great defender of our nation, that without them, our country would be very different. So they portrayed them as the heroes of Reconstruction, that without them, our history would be very different, and it would. Now, this movie is very powerful because it really kind of reframes the narrative of the Civil War, and we're going to begin to see how the Civil War is going to be interpreted as not so much of a fight between those who all want slavery and those who do not, but more of a, a conflict between big, bad federal government and state rights. Mm -hmm. And this is really important because this movie will be very, very, very popular, so much so that our own president, Woodrow Wilson, will, will, will say that this is his favorite movie of all time. He will play it at the White House during his tenure. Still to this day, Birth of a Nation is regarded as one of the greatest films of all time, not for its content, but for its cinematography. Film schools and classes show this routinely as a way to reflect on the transition from the silent film of 1915 and eventually as we move forward to the, um, the way in which modern films are with noise and sound. So this is interesting that the KKK grows to the largest it's ever been. There's over five million members and they employ very modern methods of recruitment. They're going after the economically disenfranchised, mostly poor white Protestants, giving them an easy scapegoat to point to as it's the new Catholics, Jews, and African-Americans moving into their communities that is the ones that are ruining their lives. Their tactics are still the same of many of the old tactics that we saw in Reconstruction. Lynching is still widespread, and there's a resurgence of white lynching in this era. Um, tar and feathering, holding positions in state and local government. Therefore, if your organization is held accountable, nobody needs to see it advance any further. Specifically, Texas and Indiana was inundated with members of the Klan that were elected to uh, government positions. Eventually, in the 1920s, people tolerate this movement as they're seen as defenders of Christianity, a specific white type of Christianity in the early 20s. But as the decade um, moves forward, we see reports of fraud, murder, and eventually the, they're exposed, and the decline of this organization is surrounded by that. The Grand Dragon, David Stevenson, is convicted of murder, and the KKK goes back into hibernation until a few decades later. But the continued ex they are continued to express white supremacy all the way to modern time. Okay, this concludes Audio Lecture 7-4 Notes. All right, we'll see you next time. Take care.